Well, hey, good morning, Zion. How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome, wonderful to see you all. Uh, if you're new with us, if this is your first time or you're newish, welcome. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion. I'm so glad you are here. Um, if you're looking for a place to call home, a spiritual community, we hope you'll consider being a part of what God is doing here. Uh, God's doing some pretty cool stuff. Would you agree with that? Um, I want to thank our worship team for in, inviting us into the presence, helping us to understand the importance of worship. And, and I just want to give and extend a challenge to us as a community. The reason why we sing, the reason why we engage in this worship, I mean, let's be honest, where, how many other places do you go to and, and sing apart from maybe a bar doing karaoke? <laughs> um, but there's a reason why we do it, and it actually comes from the Apostle Paul. And Paul gives us a challenge to meet together regularly, to preach the word, to hear the word, to pray for one another, and then to sing songs. And particularly, the purpose of the songs are, first and foremost, for God's glory. Amen? That's why we worship. We worship because the picture that we get in heaven is that when we get to heaven, there will be singing and rejoicing. All the angels, every, all of creation will be lifting the name of God high, particularly the name of Jesus. But also, there's an encouragement. How many of you have ever found yourself in worship and you hear people singing and it encourages your soul? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Think about the encouragement that takes place when we worship for one another. In fact, when we worship one another, or when we worship together the Lord, what we discover is that God is moving in the midst of what is happening. And that's why we're here. That's why we're ultimately here. We're not here to be inspired or to hear an encouraging message. We're ultimately here for the glory of God. And, and so I just, I want to draw our attention to that. Now I have to apologize. My computer the last couple of days has been a real pain in the tuchus. And so it shut down. But thankfully, I have printed notes. <laughs> uh, and so uh, we're going through a series called the solas. Sola is Latin for alone. Everybody say alone. Now, the solas, if the, the creed, the Apostles' Creed is the foundation by which all of our faith is built. It's what unites us with other churches, denominations, even our Catholic brothers and sisters. The solas are the pillars of our faith. It is what we believe as Christians, and, and we've been walking through this year a series because we have three core values that are part of our, our vision statement here at Zion. It's belong, believe, become. We're a safe place where you do not have to believe to belong. However, we are unapologetically about Jesus. Amen? And because of that, we want to make sure that you understand what we believe. And so we have intentionally been walking through a season of belief. Why do we believe what we do? What does that belief look like into our lives? Because our final value is become. And whatever you believe in, you become like. That's just the reality of how humans are wired. And so with that no further ado, would you stand with me as we read God's Word today? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Let's read it together here. For it is by grace you have been saved by faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The word of the Lord, praise be to God. You may be seated. We would most likely not exist as a modern church if it were not for a 16th century Catholic priest named Martin Luther. It's this guy right here. That's not an actual picture. It's a painting. They didn't have phones back then or cameras. <laughs> uh, and what we've discovered over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at what does it look like to live in the Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was the result of one man standing up and saying, hey, listen, 
we need to go to God's word. It doesn't matter what a Catholic, what a Pope says. It doesn't matter what a pastor says. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. What matters is what God's word says. That alone, that's it. And so we've been exploring the Protestant Reformation. And our first pillar is sola scriptura. Everybody say sola scriptura. Which means scripture alone. And the idea behind sola scriptura is this, is that the Catholic Church had all, they, had the, they were the only game in town, so to speak. There was no Baptist church on the corner. There was no Lutheran church. There was no non-denominational church. It was the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church taught that the only people who could read the Bible were priests. That was it. If you weren't a priest, you did not have access to the Bible. It was written in Greek and then translated into Latin. And it wasn't until the Reformation that Martin Luther actually translated the Bible into the common language of the people, which were German at that point. But before that, no one had access to their Bible. So when the Pope decreed something or when a pastor said something, you had no way to go and say, is this true or not? You just had to believe them. Now, part of that is within the Roman Catholic faith. And I want to be abundantly clear. I love my Catholic brothers and sisters. I believe they are people of faith. I believe they love the same Jesus I do. But we have some disagreements, okay? Now, I also want to make it clear. Over the last two weeks, we've talked very heavily about the difference between Catholicism and Protestant faith. And this is not meant to be a bash on Catholicism, okay? It, it, rather, I want you to understand the deep richness of why we believe what we do. And in fact, that we would be grateful for the, those that went before us to show us a different way of understanding God's grace, salvation, Christ, what the cross did for us. And, and so I, I say that because in all of this, it could be very easily to misunderstand me in thinking that this is just a Catholic bashing session. It's not. They believe in Jesus. They believe that Jesus Christ saved us, that faith comes through him, and that salvation comes through him. But there are some differences, and those differences really do matter. And so I say that because how many of you were raised Catholic? Raise your hand. Did you love Jesus when you were a kid? Did the people around you love Jesus? Yes. Now, I also want to say this. Lutherans don't get it right either. There are things within Lutheranism that I go, I don't know that I agree with that. There are things within being Baptist, non-denominational. All of us are in the process of trying to live in light of God's word. That's what every Christian should, deserve, should desire that. In fact, if we look at it, the word reformed comes from the idea that what we're really wanting to be is constantly reformed in light of God's word, sola scriptura. And so as we look at this, hear my heart. And I'm going to share just a little bit more. We're going to continue to talk about some of those differences, but it's only when we understand where we came from that we can understand how we got to where we are. Does that make sense? How many of you have ever heard this phrase, those who, uh, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it? Did you know that's actually not true? History doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. It's not going to be exactly the same, but it sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? And so as we look where we came from and we look at what we believe, what we as Christians, Protestant, protesting Christians believe, is rooted in these five solas. The first one, sola scriptura, it is God's word alone. Now, I want to share again, because not everybody has been here the last couple weeks, so I'm just going to do a brief overview of where we came from. In the 16th century, there was a pope named, named Leo X. And Leo X was a rather corrupt pope. And within Catholicism, it is believed that it's not just the Bible alone that is your authority, but your authority also comes from church tradition and from the pope and from the priests. And so it's not just God's word. It's God's word as brought to you by the pope or the papacy, as well as church tradition. 
And so Leo wanted to build what was called St. Peter's Basilica. And if you look within Catholicism, they have some of the most beautiful buildings in the world. Would you agree with that? They're stunning, the architecture. And I want you to hear the heart behind it. Most Catholics, the reason why they built those things is to actually point people to God, not to the building. That's why the art in there is so beautiful. How have you ever been to an art exhibit and you found yourself going, wow, God is good. I love art. And so the art within it is meant to point to it. However, what can we do this in within our Protestant, within evangelical Christianity. Sometimes we get more concerned about the building than the God who is meant to building pointing to. And Leo wanted to build the building but didn't have the funds to do it. And so he instituted this thing called indulgences. Everybody say indulgences. Okay, now I'm going to explain what those are if you're not familiar. And the Catholic Church still preaches indulgences. But here was the idea. See, our faith is in Christ as Savior. That's it. That's what we believe. That's what they believe. They still believe that Jesus is saving us. However, there are some glaring differences about what we believe as not just Lutherans, but evangelical Protestant Christians between us and the Roman Catholic Church. Now, you might be wondering, as we're looking at this, what are those, how are those beliefs, how do they live out? What does that look like? And because the language can sound very similar. In fact, that's where some of the confusion is. Is You ever had somebody, you're having a conversation with somebody, you think you're saying the same thing, but your words mean very different things? That's actually what's happening within the Catholic Church and within Luther himself and this discussion. And so here's what we find. See, what we believe about God, Jesus, salvation, faith, and grace, these are not just theoretical conversations. They are theological conversations, meaning they are how we think about God. And they should impact us. In fact, what I believe about salvation, what I believe about Jesus, about faith and grace, actually impacts how I preach. Um, Many years ago, I was pastoring a church in San Jose, and I went through a, a really rough period in my life where my, I kind of had this, I, I thought the goal of Christianity was to constantly be challenging, and so a lot of my messages had no grace in them. It was just challenge, 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 and I was frustrated. I was frustrated with the church. I was frustrated with myself, and one of my leaders came up to me, and she said, Jason, I love you, but I got to be honest. Every time you preach, I just feel like I'm getting beat up. And I don't know if you've ever been in a sermon like that where, not because the Holy Spirit's convicting you, but because all you're hearing is you're not enough, you're not enough, you're not enough, you're not doing good enough, you're not being good enough, it's just enough, enough. How many have ever felt that way? I have. And she challenged me on this, and it made me look back, and I started realizing, I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm pretty frustrated. And so what we believe about faith and grace actually matters, and it matters how I preach but as we look at this, this is where sola scriptura, and then last week we talked about solus Christus, Christ alone. These two things matter. And they're pointing us to our third pillar today, which we're going to be getting into, which is sola gratia. And I'll explain what that means. But first, let me tell you what both of us proclaim, okay? This is both within Catholicism and Christianity, and, and because Jesus is at the center this is why I still call them brothers and sisters in Christ is because they believe in these things. But what they, how they believe they function is different, okay? So first of all, we both believe that the Bible is God's word. Check. We do. Catholics believe in Scripture. They believe that the Bible was given to us and inspired by the Holy Spirit written through human beings. We both believe that Jesus alone is Savior. We believe that heaven is for Christians alone. In fact, when you get to heaven, the only people that will be there are those who want Jesus as king. If you don't want Jesus as king, you don't want to be in heaven, right? And, and so 
as we look at this, they believe the same thing. Faith in Jesus alone. They also believe that faith in Jesus alone saves, and they believe that Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins, just like we do. And they, we, they also believe we are saved by God's grace. Now, you might be like, Jason, all those sound like exactly the same things we believe. What's the problem? The problem is what we mean by the words. And this is what Luther was challenging. Luther was pressing into and, and saying, listen, no, you might be saying that it's Scripture alone, but it's really not Scripture alone. It's the Bible plus what the Pope says, plus what church tradition says. And so sola scriptura was birthed out of this understanding that, no, we submit when it comes to matters of faith, life, morality, and ethics, we submit to this, this alone. And I, I, this might be undermining my own authority, but it doesn't matter what I say from the stage. If it doesn't align with God's word, it's not true. This is why I take studying the Bible so seriously, why I encourage us to be a people who love God's word, because you, wouldn't, you may not even know that I'm preaching something that's unbiblical if you don't read this book. If you don't know the author, if you don't have a relationship with God, if you're not in community, I could say all kinds of crazy things up here, and you'd be like, well, he said it up there. It must be true. I read it on Facebook. That's also true. Because why? If someone says it from a stage, or if it's written on a book, or if it's online, it certainly couldn't be false. And Luther, long before the internet, long before Facebook, Luther challenged and said, no, it's Scripture alone. We believe the only authority is God's Word. That's it. It doesn't matter what the Pope, a pastor, an author, or anyone else says. If it does not stand under God's word, it is not to be believed. The second is when we look at Jesus' salvation in heaven. Now, again, I highlight these differences so we understand and can be grateful where we came from. In Catholicism, it says this. They believe Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the second person of the Trinity, just like we do, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They believe that he died on the cross for our sins. We believe that and rose again on the third day, just as we do. They believe that no one can get to heaven apart from Christ. So, and again, agreement. However, and this is the difference, while Jesus died for our sins and does make us holy, his death does not deal with our moral unrighteousness. And so we actually have to become morally right with God, and the way we do that is through good works. And so here's where things start, where Luther started pushing and saying, wait, does this align with God's word? Does this align with what we understand about the Bible? See, imagine for a moment that Jesus began the work of our holiness, but we have to finish it. That yes, you get to heaven through Christ, but if you die and have not had all of your sins, all the guilt and shame dealt with, there's an intermediate place that you go to called purgatory. Everybody say purgatory. Purgatory is this middle ground where that when you die, God is up here, you're down here, and you have to suffer for your sins. And once that suffering is complete, then you can go to heaven. Now, how many of you have ever wondered how people become saints? Have you ever heard in the news like so-and-so has been made a saint? Mother Teresa in the last, I think, decade and a half became a saint. Here's where it comes from. Check this out. See, you know that someone is with God. Once they're in heaven, they're considered a saint. Well, the only way they can be a saint means they've ascended through purgatory. They've suffered for all their sins enough so that all of their moral unrighteousness has been dealt with. Now they have God's ear. Now, you may have read this or heard this, so what you do is you think somebody like, let's say, Mother Teresa, you pray to Mother Teresa, not because she's God, but because if she's in heaven, God will hear her voice. And so if you pray for a miracle and it happens, 
It has to be confirmed by the Catholic Church. But if a miracle happens, it means that Mother Teresa has ascended through purgatory and is at the right hand, is not the right hand of God, but is at, in God's presence because God heard her. Now, this is where indulgences come in because here's what was happening is the church believes, the Roman Catholic Church believes, that the merits, which are the good deeds, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the apostles did so many good works that they actually have a treasure trove of merits available to the church. It's called the treasury of the church. And Pope Leo X decided, well, hey, I need to raise funds to build the basilica, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take that treasury that I have, and I'm going to sell the merits of Mary and the disciples. And if you pay the church money, we'll take their, their, their credits and give it to you so you can get out of purgatory faster. It's called an indulgence. Now, if you couldn't do that, the sacraments, which we believe in the sacraments, but the purpose of the sacraments are different. See, in Roman Catholicism, the seven sacraments are called means of grace. And this is where our understanding of grace differs. See, they believe that the sacraments provide God's grace so that you can do good works, so that you can become morally right. Now, here's where things get sticky and different. In Luther's day, there were three primary, there are seven sacraments in the Catholic Church, but there were three primary ones that they held on to. Um, the first one is baptism. Now, we practice baptism, and when a child is born, or uh, as a child is born, they baptize that baby because they believe baptism wipes away the sins of the, those inherited to the child. Now, we do infant baptism, but we do it for a different reason. We believe that when you baptize a child, that you are bringing it before the Lord and he is honoring his covenantal promises. That's it. Second is communion. Now, in Catholicism, they believe that when you take communion, that the priest has to consecrate the bread and the wine, and when he does that, the bread and the wine literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus. The physical blood, body and blood is called transubstantiation. And here's the thing, in, when you took communion, God's grace was given to you for the forgiveness of your sins, which then led to the third one, which how many of you have ever seen the confessional booth in Catholicism, the Catholic Church, right? We see this in the movies, you, you sit behind a booth, there's a little veil or thing you can't see each other, and someone sits there and begins to confess their sin. Usually it's a mobster or something who you know, wants to be forgiven before he kills somebody, right? And then in this, this is called penance. Uh, or reconciliation, and the idea was this, is that when you confess, the only one who can forgive you is the church. You don't have direct access to God because you're morally unrighteous, so you have to go to a priest. The authority in the priesthood allows them to forgive you. So you have to be, first, you have to show true sorrow. You have to say, I'm really sorry for what I've done. Second, you have to confess to the priest. Then the priest will absolve you, saying that your forgiveness, you have been forgiven for the sin and that the guilt is released. And then he'll tell you to do a good work called satisfaction. And satisfaction is where you now, if you've ever heard this, I want you to say six Hail Marys, seven Our Fathers. I want you to give to the poor and then do a good deed. And the reason why you did this is that now, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, God is giving you the power to do good deeds so you can become morally right, so that when you die, you have less time in purgatory. Because how many of you in this room have unforgiven or unconfessed sin? You better all raise your hand. <laughs> right? Every single one of us here. How many of you have done so many sins you've forgotten some of the sins you've, you've done? Like, right? There are sins I don't even realize I've done it. And so because of those, you cannot ask for forgiveness of something you forgot about. And so Leo was saying, hey, listen, 
uh, I'm going to use the treasury of the church, the merits of the saints, so that you can basically buy your way out of purgatory. And Luther, this didn't set well with Luther. In fact, Luther was deeply bothered because there was a man named Johann Tetzel. Johann Tetzel was a monk. Did you know, and this is, I'm gonna, you might want to plug your little kid's ears because I'm going to say something that's going to, might cause questions, okay? It was noted that Johann Tetzel said this. The power of indulgences are, is so powerful that you could pay an indulgence and you would be forgiven for violating the very mother of God. That's how powerful indulgences were. Now, whether or not he actually said it or not, we don't know. But Johann Tetzel was promoting indulgences, and he would guilt people and saying, listen, your, your loved ones are in purgatory suffering, and you can ease their suffering for a pittance. Just put some money in, and we'll give you. You can buy an indulgence and get them out of purgatory sooner. And then he would say this little ditty, as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. I don't know about you, but that kind of makes makes me feel a little icky. Luther got a hold of this, heard about this, and was deeply bothered by it. Why? Because here's the thing. This is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us Christ alone. Solus Christus. We believe that Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death alone paid the debt of our sins in full. We are declared righteous because Jesus took the punishment of our sins and shame and guilt and defeated them on the cross and the resurrection. Can I get an amen? We are declared righteous because of what Jesus did. We are not morally right because of anything we do. We are declared right because of Jesus. So that when God looks at us, he sees our sins as forgiven, dealt with. Our righteousness is one of a declaration. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who had no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. See, Luther had access to this, and as he read these verses, he went, wait a second, this doesn't align with what the Pope is teaching. How can what Jesus did be enough to make me right if I've got to pay for my sins, and if I've got to do good deeds. And so this led to Luther saying, no, no, Jesus paid it all. It's all done. And if Jesus paid it all, it means there's no debt that you have to recover. There's no purgatory. There's nothing you have to do to earn that righteousness. You are declared right in spite of you. And this made Luther nail what's called the 95 Thesis to the door. And because Scripture tells us, yes, we're called to be obedient. We're called to do good works, but not to earn our salvation. We're called to do them because of our salvation, because of what Christ has done in us. Now, we still believe baptism is good. We believe God works through baptism. It unites us with Christ. We believe in baptism. It unites us to a family. We believe that when you baptize a baby. Now, if you do not believe in infant baptism, let me clear some things up. We do not believe that if you baptize a baby, it goes to heaven. I believe that if a child dies without being baptism, he goes to heaven because God is good. That's it. I look at the character and the nature of God, and I see a God who is loving, just, and good, and he is always going to do the right and best thing. Amen? That's it. And so we baptize the baby believing that God has made a covenantal promise to the parents that he will work in that child to produce faith in that child because even faith is something that I can't produce on my own. I cannot conjure up faith. Now, if you don't believe in infant baptism, that's okay. Guess what? It's not a salvation issue. We can completely disagree on it. And you can be like, I don't know that I agree with it. Do we believe that we're saved through Christ? Yes. Amen. There's what we, that's what we stand on. We also believe in communion. But we don't believe that the body and blood literally becomes 
Jesus, but rather the real presence of Jesus is in communion so that when you take it, it is more than just symbolic. We believe that the Holy Spirit nourishes the life of the believer when they partake in the Lord's Supper. Just as food nourishes you physically, we believe the Lord's Supper nourishes us spiritually. Amen? And so when we believe that, we believe there's a sacrament, but they are not good works or good deeds. They are part of how we remain and retain our healthiness as believers. The same is true in confession. We do not believe confession is a sacrament. Rather, the reason why we confess is, you know who needs to hear that they're forgiven? Sinners. Guess what you and I still are? Sinners. So when I confess to somebody, you don't have to confess to me. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I'm somehow closer to God. You have the same access to God that I do because you have the same spirit who dwells in you that I do. So why do we confess? We confess because when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us. There's one thing to know you're forgiven. It's another thing to walk in that forgiveness. Does that make sense? One of the ways that I see Catholicism continued in the church today and I shared this last week, is when I have people come up to me and say, Jason, I really need a pastor to pray for me. Why? Because you're the pastor. Like, as if somehow I've got some magical powers that like, because I have a, a, a few initials at the end of my name, it makes what I'm going to say more spiritual. You ever heard somebody who prays really well and you're like, I can't pray because I can't pray like that? You know what I'm talking about? Guess what? God might be more annoyed by their prayers than blessed by them. Fancy words don't impress God. A heart bent towards God blesses God. So when people come to me and say, well, Jason, I can't pray because I don't have the eloquent words. You know what? I can't tell you how many times that I've prayed and I wasn't talking to God. I was talking to everybody else who was listening. This is why the Reformation is so important. The Reformation opened doors for us to, be, us to begin to see Jesus, what Jesus did through a new lens because it wasn't accessible before that. Because anybody who challenged the church back then, well, if you were found guilty, you were killed. That's, that's pretty good motivation to not challenge the church. It took incredible courage to stand up. This leads us to our third treasury, see when we, or the, our third pillar. Our third pillar is sola gratia, grace alone. Everybody say grace alone. See, it is Scripture alone because God has revealed Himself through the Bible and it's through Jesus alone that we're saved. But why did Jesus come? Why are we saved? It is by God's grace alone that we are saved. Now, Catholicism does teach that we are saved by God's grace alone, but what they mean by God's grace is different. And this is why when I meet, I've met many Catholic brothers and sisters who deeply love Jesus, but they walk in incredible fear where they're not sure, have I done enough? Not because they're afraid they won't get to heaven. Some of them don't understand, but more like, I don't know about you, but the idea of suffering for, let's say, 10,000 years in purgatory, that's not very hopeful. And I know for a fact that I've not done enough. So indulgences actually sounds kind of like, if I could pay for my salvation, I would, wouldn't you? If, I, if someone said, Jason, just pay me $10,000 and you can go to heaven, I'll save up, man. That's, <laughs> if I don't need to change my life, if I just got to pay for it, that's great. Because that's human nature is we don't like grace. In fact, we're deeply opposed to grace. Because Catholicism teaches that we cannot attain righteousness apart from God's grace. But here's the difference. Ready? Picture God's grace like an energy drink. This is what the sacrament is. Keep that up there for a moment, okay? Holy Ghost. 
right there. This is, this, is what they, this is what they teach, okay? Now, again, I want you to, they believe in Jesus. We love them. This is not bashing. This is actually, this is the, the belief system, okay? See, they believe it's God's grace, but it's God's grace infused in you so that you can do the right things so that you can become perfectly holy so therefore you can get to heaven. Now, the only key to heaven, you have to believe in Jesus. So yes, it's through Jesus alone and through grace alone, but the grace is a little bit different than what the Bible actually teaches. See, in Catholicism, they absolutely believe that Jesus died for our sins. Now, I want to be clear. There are other religions that will teach Jesus has died for his sins. You can take that down. God's grace provides more of a shot of a supernatural energy drink, like a spiritual Red Bull, so to speak. I don't think they heard me. You can take that down now. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. <laughs> um, but you're still standing in your unrighteousness. Imagine for a moment, it's like you're standing in your own filth. And you need to clean yourself up. This is the idea that we find. And so the, the sacraments were means of that grace to take place in your life. And so you did things like communion and baptism and confession. Because every time you did that, it was you cleaning you off through God's grace. So God's grace is still there. But it's a very different understanding of what they mean by grace. And so now, here's, what the, here's the problem, okay? And, and I want you to hear. Imagine for a moment if the church is the mediator, if the church is the go-between the world and everybody else, if I have the power and the authority to reject you, I'm no longer the bridge to help you get to Christ. I'm now the gatekeeper who can keep you from Christ. I never, I pray that I never become an obstacle to somebody's faith. And so what was taking place is you had priests who would deny people the sacraments if they did not seem good enough. Um, there was uh, just recently, the, the most re I think it's the most recent pope, um, he refused communion publicly, I think it was to Nancy Pelosi, because of her stance on abortion. Now, I know many Christians are like, man, that's so brave. Yeah, that's so unbiblical. Isn't that the nature of grace? Grace is outside of you. And he chose to do it as a statement to the world of, you know, the Catholic Church supports pro-life. But here's what I want you to hear. Whether or not you're pro-life or pro-choice, the gospel is still for you. Let us never become an obstacle to God's grace and including who we are. And so imagine for a moment he's... Luther is seeing this. Now, uh, before Christmas, we, we walked through two series. We did a series called Formed and Recovered, which were all about how the, uh, the stories we believe have deformed us. We have wrong stories about God. We have wrong stories about ourselves, about the world, about other people. And we have wrong stories about the gospel. And we need to recover. We need to recover the right story. We need to recover the gospel story. We need to recover what Jesus did. And, and here's why I share this, okay? So the Reformation actually was these two things being played out. See, Martin Luther realized, hey, wait a second, the story of the gospel has been deformed by the teaching of the church. And I, still, I want you to hear this. It's still being deformed by the teaching of the church, not just the Catholic church, any church. None of us get it perfectly. Sometimes we preach things that are not the gospel. And he said, so now we, we need to recover it. And that's what the solas were. That's what the 95 thesis was. It was a recovery mission. That's really what the Reformation was. It was a recovery mission to recover the gospel that had been lost. Lost by human tradition. Sola gratia, grace alone, is at the center of that recovery mission. 
And this is our third sola. In fact, you could argue it, it might be the most important of all the solas because without it, Jesus and the Bible makes no sense to us. What if when Paul actually wrote these words in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which is what our verses were today, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. What if somewhere along the way, the church had actually stripped the verses of the gospel? I know there were seasons in my life where I stripped the gospel from the verses because it was uncomfortable or because of my own wrong belief. Listen to these verses again, and I I want you to pay attention to what's being said here, okay? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is, what's the word there? A gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. It is a grace that you have been saved through faith. We're going to get to faith next week because that's the fourth pillar, but it is grace, pure, 100% pure, unadulterated God's gift to you. But the next part is critical because it changes everything because God's grace changes everything, not by, what's the word there? Works, not by merits, not by your merits, not by Mary's merits, not by the apostles' merits, not by the church's, but because of what Jesus did. Jesus did all the work for us. Otherwise, if you could earn it, it's not a gift, it's a reward. It's a payment. Listen to what Martin Luther himself wrote. This is from uh, um, uh, uh, Martin Luther. Here it is. Check this out. But no man can be thoroughly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, devices, and endeavors, his will and works, and depends entirely on the choice will and work of another, namely of God alone. For as long as he is persuaded that he himself can do even the least thing toward his salvation, he retains some self-confidence and does not altogether despair of himself. And therefore, he is not humbled before God, but presumes that there is or at least hopes or desires that there may be some place, some time, and some work for him by which he may at length attain his own salvation. This is Martin Luther. But when a man has no doubt that everything depends on the will of God, then he completely despairs of himself and chooses nothing for himself, but waits for God to work. Then he has come close to grace. Luther just said this. I mean, listen to how profound this is. If you believe for one moment that you can do it on your own, that you can work for it, you can pay for it, you can buy it, you can attain it on your own, you will do that. Why? Because grace is hard to accept. But when you realize that it is grace alone, it leaves you utterly in despair because you are not self-reliant when it comes to salvation. You can't get to heaven on your own. You must rely on God's work to do it. And that's scary, especially for Americans. We don't like relying on anybody, do we? Utter despair for the person who thinks they can do enough when they begin to understand grace because grace is scary. If any good work I do has the ability to make me right before God, then it's no longer grace. Some of you in this room are still trying to do the right things in the hopes that you'll somehow attain a blessing, and that blessing might be salvation from God. I know it because I've heard it. And I want you to hear it. That's not the gospel. 
That's not the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is that Jesus paid it all. Sola gratia alone helps us see God's grace for what it is, unmerited favor. That's it. You've done nothing to deserve it. Because the truth is, we're not very good at giving grace or receiving grace. Imagine for a moment, think of it this way, justice is getting what somebody deserves, right? We all want justice unless we're at the center of getting it. (laughs) Then I want mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace, then, is getting what you never deserved. That is the nature of grace. Grace is not conditional because if it was, it would no longer be grace. Grace, what the Bible teaches us, this is why we go to God's Word, not to some popular book, not to a popular pastor. We go to God's Word because God's Word points a picture to the authority of the believer's life and understanding God's grace. All of us have sinned. That includes Mary and the apostles and the popes and pastors and leaders and persons standing up here on this stage right now, the person sitting next to you. Some of you are like, did you hear that? (laughs) All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's from Romans 3.23. Paul said this in Galatians 5. The acts of the flesh, the flesh is what we all have, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, some of you, this is what humans do. We always tend to set the bar really low. Jason, I'm not that bad of a person. I mean, sure, I lie a little bit, but at least I'm not Hitler. That's a pretty low bar. We always want to assume, right, at least I'm not a murderer. And then Jesus messes it all up and says, you ever hated somebody? You've committed murder in your heart. You ever lusted after somebody? You're an adulterer. Yeah. Grace. Grace changes everything. This is not a complete list. There are so many other sins. Even on that list, I guarantee you that if you're honest with yourself, you've committed at least one of those sins. And if you've committed one of the sins, then you're a breaker of laws. You are a lawbreaker. Therefore, you need grace. 1 John 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, we declare ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sin makes us guilty in God's sight, but it also is what separates us from the holiness of God. But here's the problem for many of you is because what we want to do is put sin on a scale. We'll say bad sins versus sin are sin, big sin versus little sin. And sometimes, here's what our culture wants to do. Our culture wants to say, well, that's not really a sin. It's just a bad decision. Sin is not just missing the mark, and because that's what we think is just a small missing the mark. No, sin is so much more than just missing the mark. Sin causes fractures in relationships. If you've ever had somebody lie to you and you discover that you were lied to, it causes a fracture. It doesn't matter if it's a small or a big lie. Lies cause fractions or, uh, fractures, don't they? This is why we need the gospel. And so here's what we find is, I've only lied a little bit, and then at least I've never fill in the blank, and there's a reason why we need to do this. It's the reason why we want big sin versus little sin. We want to say sin versus bad decision. It's because real grace makes us super uncomfortable. When you understand what grace is, it will make you really squirm. Philip Yancey, who is an author, wrote this, grace teaches us that God loves us because of who God is, not because of who we are. That's what grace teaches us. But we've been blinded by our own pride and ego, so God gave us the law. The purpose of the law in the Old Testament was to show us that none of us have this right. Again, this is why we go to God's Word. 
Um, Jesus said this, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. The apostle Paul wrote these words with Jesus in mind because Jesus, Paul is not Jesus. He's a follower of Jesus. Okay. Listen to what Paul says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The purpose of the Old Testament laws, which when I was younger, I thought the Old Testament was dumb. I, I, what's the point of reading it? It's all about Jesus. No, Jesus came to help us understand that we can't live to the law. The law reveals how we broke the law. That's all it does. The law can't save us. It simply condemns us. It does tell us how God wants us to live, but none of us can live up to it. Um, so I grew up in San Diego, and if you've ever been to the beach, how many of you have ever seen a, a colored flag on the beach? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so now here's what those flags represent. The flags tell us the conditions of the oceans, okay? So growing up in San Diego, I love to go down to La Jolla Shores, and one day I see this red flag. And the red flag is up, and here's what the warning of the red flag is. The warning says that either the waves, there's either an undertow or a rip current, there could be jellyfish or sharks, but water is not safe to get in. In fact, you should stay out of the water for all many different reasons, and I don't know the reason, but I look out, and again, because I grew up in San Diego, I saw surfers out there, I saw people swimming, ignoring the red flag, and I'm like, hey, I'm not the greatest swimmer, but I'm pretty good. So I went out into the water, and I started going out, and I've got my bodyboard, and I'm catching waves, and all of a sudden, I'm finding that the waves are really brutal, and they're just pounding me down, and I'm getting tired, and I'm trying to swim, and even though I've got my bodyboard, I'm not getting any closer to shore, and I'm struggling, and because the waves are coming, I can't stay on my board, and I'm finding myself, I can't do this, and now all of a sudden, that red flag looked like a really good idea, right? And I look, and there are lifeguards who are on jet skis, and they're coming around, and they're rescuing people. Now, check this out. This lifeguard comes up to me, and they've got the, the jet ski, and they've got this board that you hop on, and they'll pull you in. And the lifeguard comes up, and she says, hey, do you need some help? Now, you want to hear the stupid thing? In that moment, I went, I don't need help. <laughs> That's what my head, my head was like, you don't need help. And then another wave hit me, and I'm like, yes, please. And, I, and she dragged me into shore, and, and I, got, I got rescued, because no matter how hard I try, I could not rescue myself. Now, here's the stupid thing, and there are, there are dumb things in this. One, the lifeguards know for a fact that dumb people are going to get in the water. They do. They know that people are going to ignore the flag. But the flag can't save me. If I'm drowning, it's not like the flag's going to throw itself out there and rescue me. No, I need a lifeguard. I need a rescuer to come and get me. They know that. That's why they have lifeguards. Now, here's the really dumb part of me. I was the dumb part, right? Uh, here's my stupidity came in because even in that moment, I knew that I was in danger. I knew that I could not do this anymore. There was a part of me that wanted to go, I can do this. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need rescue. I got this. I'm good. I accepted the help not because I was humble, but because I was humbled. And this is what happens for many of you in this room. Instead of accepting the gift of grace that comes through Christ, not by your works, you need God to humble you. You need to be humbled so you'll accept the grace. And I'm here to tell you, it doesn't have to be that way. You can simply say, God, I need rescue. I've talked to people who are not Christians. They're like, Jason, I don't really need Jesus. I mean, my life is good. 
until it's not. You know how many people all of a sudden want Jesus when they're dying of cancer? And guess what? God's grace still shows up. Because that's what makes it grace alone. Grace alone is not conditioned upon the fact that, imagine for a moment, and this is... Thank you. Grace. I'm good. This has been one of those mornings, man. I'm going to clean that up because I don't need somebody else to clean up my mess. That's not grace. <laughs> here's, here's what happens. Where was I? Grace, that's right. Here's the thing about grace. Grace humbles us. We need the law to be reminded of the fact that even when I think I'm at my best, I still need it. Grace reminds me that when I'm at my worst, I'm still forgiven. It reminds me when I'm at my best, I still need forgiveness. That is God's grace. I need, I need two, uh, two young volunteers, not my children, because I know my children will be like, I'll do it. I need two, two. They can be high school, middle school. I just need two volunteers. Come up. Just. All right. Anybody? Come on. I just need two. So, no, just come up. Just come up. Okay, you're going you're gonna to be, Ray, get up here. I need one more. I need one more. You're going to miss out. Should I call somebody? Come here, come here. Trust me, you're going to want it. No? You want it? All right, check this out. Now you're all going to learn a lesson. Ray, come here. Did you do, you came up here, right? That's for you. Thank you. I don't know. I don't want it back. I don't want you to put it in the offering plate. Here you go. Really? That's totally yours. No, I mean it. This is not a gag. This is yours. You get to keep that. That's yours. I, in fact, if you put it in there, I'm going to take it out and give it back to you. Because here's what grace is. Did she do anything to earn that? No. She simply had to receive it. She didn't earn it. She didn't have to work for it. You're like, but Jason, she had to walk up here. Isn't that working for it? No. The only thing she had to do was receive it. That's grace. So that's, that's yours, really. So take it. Take it. In fact, I, it's, you, it's truly yours. Go. Thank you. This is grace. <laughs> Here, throw that to me. Thank you. I'll pay you later. <laughs> no, get your mind out of the gutters. That's my wife. This is what grace does. Did you notice what happened there? It's interesting. I invited anybody who wanted to receive it, and, and that's embarrassing. I don't, I don't, I don't want to go up. That's, that's, that's awkward. I also know why I didn't invite my kids, because they're like, I'll go up. <laughs> See, that's the thing about grace, and you just got a perfect example of why so many people don't want it, is they're embarrassed by it. And yet you missed it. And I also love the fact that once somebody was like, well, that's grace, I'm up. <laughs> right? <laughs> and you notice, did I go, nope, you don't deserve that. No, it's grace. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus came, Christ alone, because of God's grace alone. 
not because you've earned it, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And when you can get that into your mind, and here's what, there are some of you in this room right now who are struggling to accept God's grace because you're like, Jason, you don't know what I've done. Then you don't know what Jesus has done. Because if you think for one second that you've done too much in your life to somehow forfeit God's grace, you don't understand grace. This is at the heart of sola gratia. This is what Luther was fighting against is, no, the minute you put an obstacle, the minute you put a price tag, the minute you try and make it something you earn, you forfeit. You now have rejected God's grace because you want to earn it. Jesus paid it all, not by works, not by anything you've done, but simply because of what he's done. Would you stand with me? First service always gets the fun things, man. (laughs) We've done this each week, and I'm going to ask you to do it again. Would you all do me a favor and close your eyes? This morning, if you've never received God's grace, I'm going to give you an invitation. If you're like, Jason, I've never given my life to Christ. I've never surrendered it. If you'd like to receive the gift of grace, salvation through Christ this morning, would you raise your hand? Keep your hand up for a second, please. Thank you. Now, I want you to repeat after me, and I want all of us, because we all need it. Pray these words all together. Let's say it. Lord Jesus, I confess my sin. I surrender my life to you, because you died for me. You took my place. Be my king, my Lord, my Savior, my rescuer. Help me know your grace. Help me live in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we just give a thank you? We had some people raise their hands. Okay, now here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you raised your hand, I want you to turn to somebody at some point today and just say this. I surrendered my life to Christ. That's all you got to say. You can say it in your own words. You can say, I became a Christian today. I gave my life. This is grace. I can't wait for you to hear about faith next week. Let's come and worship the Lord. We're going to take our tithes and offerings, and please don't step here and slip. (laughs) Um, Thank you, Brett. Oh, You guys ready to worship? All right, let's come and worship. Wait for the drummer. (laughs) Thank you, Brett. Let's take our tithes and offering. Let's come and worship the Lord.